we can discuss that in a second. Okay, uh, not in a second. Let's do the let's do the fucking podcast first. Ooh. Da, 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 da. Can you try that? I think there's too much gin in there. Yeah. You know, I don't know if my gin is just extra dry today. The other one still has some tonic. No, no, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> just, hello and welcome to Plants, Pipettes and Gin and Tonic. Yeah. Where um, I'm trying to pull well, the optimal we, gin. Where well, we talk about uh, uh, current uh, gin and tonic research. Today I'm drinking the Botanist, which is an island dry gin. And I suspect that it's just drier than I'm used to. Because it feels like I put too much gin in my yeah. in my gin and tonic. But that doesn't seem right. Like objectively that can't be right. <laughs> dry is one of the words for to describe drinks that I just... Like, it took me a long time to get used to the idea that the drink can be dry. It's when you, like, go, like, yeah. at, the end, <laughs> at the end of each time you drink yeah. it. And um, also, like, yeah, it's, it's it's this bitter thing that you describe, right? But we, yeah. you wouldn't call a coffee dry. You wouldn't say, like, oh, this coffee is a very dry coffee. You just say that to alcoholic drinks. Yeah. It's um, weird language. It's um, like, if your tongue is, if your taste buds are not curling a bit, it's not... There's not enough alcohol. It's not, but yeah, it's not right. even about alcohol content, right? Dry is a different thing. Like you can have a dry yeah. sherry or a yeah. Mm. I think we're just not cultured <laughs> enough, Yoram. I think we don't know. No, the, we should stick to the things we know stuff about. Every time I drink something that's not gin, I just say, "Oh, it tastes very oaky," and hope that people will like. Coffee can be oaky. Coffee can be fruity, and wines can be oaky or fruity. So I just pick one. <laughs> Sometimes I say chocolatey, like usually about coffee, not about wine. But there's like. Three adjectives yeah. I've got like tucked under. I think even for whiskeys, you can say chocolatey. I think this is a flavor that's also used sometimes. Yeah. It's I think if you say anything with enough confidence, you'll just confuse everybody around you because they also don't know. So they're just yeah. like going to just be really aggressive about it and they'll bow to your like. You just go fully in there and be like, ah, oh, yeah, this reminds me of a wine I tried 10 years ago from like the Valley of Rhone. I think the Chateau has to, Chateau has yeah. to be in there. Somewhere. Chateau of Valley de. <laughs> de le bleu bleu bleu. <laughs> we're sorry to our french listeners do uh, we have french listeners probably not i don't know um if you are a french listener write to us and say hello i'm a french listener and then we know next if you're time. a french listener and your name is steven we want to hear from you because one of our really good french friends called etienne keeps on claiming that etienne means steven in French and I just don't believe him like I think there's probably there's probably also French Stevens out there and Etienne is just trying to steal their thunder that's the most likely scenario yeah so um, French Steven get in touch and then like we can shout at our friend yeah um, yeah uh, how, how have you been uh, like panicky would be my, my dominant like emotional feeling right now like oscillating between extreme panic and extreme lethargy where I just like want to sleep and wake up like as a beautiful cocoon with all my visas sorted out my new flat in London sorted out this flat sorted like just everything sorted out like I have seven years worth of lab stuff in the freezer and in my office at work that I have to sort out (laughs) I don't want to um yeah, the key point is to identify the few things where you're confident that they might be important later on, properly mm. archive them, and then just give everything else to the fire and just be like... Yeah, this can be burn. very... Like, my freezer broke down, like, or my minus 20 freezer, so, like, not the most important freezer broke down, like, 
I don't know, two years ago. I mean, I don't think it broke. I think I didn't close the door, but um, whatever. Let, Things let's mal- call it, <laughs> let's let, call it broke. I, it was a technical <laughs> malfunction and whether I made the malfunction or it actually, whatever. The freezer did not work. All the samples melted. Some of them were RNA and it was really cathartic to just like throw that shit in the van. Just like... Yeah. Because if those samples are melted, especially uh, RNA, then... I don't know if you know that, but the, the sound of like the, the rain pipe have you heard it where you yeah. like turn it outside and like Psh, that's actually like sampled originally from like dropping effies into a bin it's the same relaxing sound. they're like this yeah. sounds so relaxing how can and we like, imitate it and then there was like a cactus and they turn the a hundred in. little plastic tubes just like <laughs> that are so cold that they sound very dry and hard and then they just i can't i can't do the sound yeah, yeah. it's beautiful it's it's really cool i recommend if you are a scientist you go in like maybe you're in the lab and listening to us talk right now go into the lab throw out all your epis and just see it's it will feel good there'll be some panic afterwards but hold on to that moment of pick goodness. a box any box <laughs> and throw it out. if you're feeling really like unconfident about throwing your own work away find a friend throw their work away instead just pick one label that doesn't have your name on it <laughs> and then hear the sound of rain <laughs> yeah that's another thing i've just like casually been invading other people's freezer space over the time so i have like stuff really i mean i've been there for seven years now almost so i have to also find all of the stuff that i don't know you're like a squirrel (laughs) hiding your samples wherever you go just like maybe i can put this in this freezer (laughs) i had a student like two years ago i mean almost a year and a half ago i guess now um and she was with me for half a year and then she went away for a bit and then she came back for another half a year and now she kind of left finally to do her phd which congratulations you deserve it i hope you have a successful phd in case she's listening um she was great but she was like hey tegan i'm leaving now like there's some stuff of yours in my freezer boxes maybe you want to deal with that (laughs) i'm just ignoring it yeah all right that's my feelings how are your feelings <laughs> i also i know the feeling of just being tired all the time i have very different reasons and um and i don't have to sort out as many things but i just i'm so constantly tired i'm back to the point where i take like noon naps oh. where because i can't manage otherwise I but just, it's also like a part important part of parenting right like noon naps yeah. are actually like oh i wasn't napping i was bonding with my small child as he slept this is yeah but the thing is that often it's my wife taking care of the boy um in in the bed and then they go to sleep and because i don't want to like accidentally wake him up i just crash on the couch i just like fall down on the couch and immediately fall asleep um so it's not like i don't have any excuses apart from just being very tired all the time Mm. um but apart from that yeah i'm i'm good uh we've been to the climate strike uh rally um last friday last friday yeah Mm. when this will be released it's pretty much yeah a week ago um it um, was great. I mean, terrifying, but great. Yeah. I also, I'm. I also don't feel very comfortable with large crowds, especially. I don't know. It, especially as a German, whenever you have like a lot of people like marching in the same direction, it gives off a, a weird vibe. That yeah, like, and we don't make those jokes. This is not that kind of podcast. <laughs> I know. I feel. I feel weird when you have like even like football fans or something. Whenever you have like a large no, crowd and all like go for the same goal like be it like chanting together or walking to a direction i always feel a little bit weird like firstly there's the mob mentality which is one thing but then there's also the kind of opposite but the same fear which is that on the group there'll be someone on the group who's not representing what you want to represent so i mm-hmm. went to the women's march and at the women's march there were other people who rocked up at the sign and they had like they had the pink signs of the women's march but they were they had their own agenda and they were like pushing their agenda as part of the women's march and it's like i want to be like pro-women's rights and a feminist but i also i don't want them to be like i don't want them to seem what i am like this is and i mean also like the climate strike had like a few other 
groups which were participating which were kind of related but not necessarily yeah yeah I've, i think the one group that i don't want to be associated with that i saw um where was like a hardcore like christian fundamentalist group that was like uh protect uh god's creation <laughs> as a motivation to fight the climate uh yeah. change um where I felt a bit weirded out, but they were very few because there were so many people there. Then you get a few nut jobs. But in they meant, were they hardcore? Like, did it seem they were like one of like these, was the like, sign like protects God creation unless you're a woman, in which case go to the kitchen and have no, babies because I mean, then it's a problem. But if they just believe in God and want to save the planet, but, I'm kind yeah. of pro. Like, yeah, I don't know exactly what group they were from, but they looked like one of these like smaller sort of uh, evangelical small groups that tried to be like hip. They had like uh, well printed signs and this mm. stuff. Like it's, it was very well organized. Like most of the, most signs you saw were like hand painted on cardboard. Most were made they, by children though as well. So yeah, and they had like the properly like probably very expensively made signs and and so on. Um, and they didn't look like regular Catholic or even Protestant uh, church things mm. that you usually see. But Actually, it's all like yeah, a couple of no a couple of from. years back, we were at Tel Aviv and at the Pride in Tel Aviv, and just before the Pride started, like in a different part of the city, there was people handing out posters, like 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 pamphlets, sorry, and they were like rainbow, so that was really deliberately Pride themed, but they were like ultra religious homophobic pamphlets. But it was also written in like mostly Hebrew, so. When you first got them, you couldn't necessarily tell, and it was quite small print. And then you looked at it, and you're like, "This is, yeah. there's something wrong with this." And it's yeah. like, "Yeah, this is like against pride, but you're trying to mi- like, yeah. yeah." But to be fair, in this demonstration now, it was like a very small part of people where I, where it looked like I would not agree with them. Mm. Um, most of them I saw were like um, ten years old. So yeah, that was the biggest. <laughs> less likely fresh- to be evil people yet. Yeah, that also made it a lot less scary because first of all, I thought like I- even if this I can group take them of- in a fight. <laughs> You couldn't though, like they would swarm, they would just like come up from the ankles and like, and yeah. yeah. But I had the feeling that if a small group of school kids would attack me, I would have a fair chance, 50 50 chance, I would say, against a small group. Hulk raging out of there, just like (laughs) flinging them off either side. Yeah, so I I got there a bit before Yoram. We were supposed to meet up there and we failed because like there were so many people, I think 200,000 people in, in the center of Berlin that the networks failed the yeah. phone network so we just like couldn't message each like we would message and then like half an hour later our message would turn up and be like i'm here but then we'd moved on um yeah so before you got there i was like trying to find where the front of the i didn't really know what was happening i was trying to find my way to like the epicenter to hear yeah. what was happening and to hear the songs and also the speeches but there were so many people and it was so packed i just could never get like close enough to yeah. actually yeah also we struggled we had no idea where the like where the march would start where the exact route would be because this also, was a little bit unclear like i expected on the website to say we start here at this time and we end here but this wasn't yeah and then, then sometimes i found maps online but they had no walking direction and then the, it was like a circular <laughs> path and you were at the point you could locate where you are at the point but you had no idea is it going like cl- clockwise or counterclockwise maybe it's symbolic of like the the chaos of the, yeah. the climate situation <laughs> yeah maybe but i mean in the end like, yeah there were so many people and we walked like the whole march and then we went home because uh yona was tired and That's we a little still, baby the, yeah the little baby was tired and we still met so many people early on the track because as it was circular we sort of passed yeah. like the first quarter of the of the track and it was still packed with people as i was going home i also saw people who were still heading out there like it was constantly filling up with more yeah. and more people and i was like well this is that's the aim is just to go there and be a body like to listen yeah. and to have signs and to, to help but like just to be a number that you can see that there's like yeah 
people want this yeah that, that was really cool um so yeah we also we just published um this week um an article we published it today right yeah so two days ago by two, the days time ago. We <laughs> two days ago when you listen to this on the day Ooh. when it's released or three days ago when you listen to it the day after it's released or <laughs> okay uh, <laughs> you figure out how dates and time works so we, yeah we, we haven't apparently <laughs> so we published an article um and um yeah summed up a little bit our experience and also talked about like things you can do um which i also wanted to sort of reiterate here also on the podcast like this idea that um often action to fight climate change is uh, understood at least in the things that i see as individual um ways of reducing your own carbon footprint which is which is a good thing to do but it's not enough to leave it at that at mm -hmm. that and it's not like if you have limited resources um it that's might maybe be not, the least important of the yeah. things you could be doing yeah so we we wrote about it we have put it out together a little list and i just want to just summarize it as like become political and question like your your voting behavior see if the people that you want to support with your vote are actually fighting the climate crisis or if they just pretend to and be very critical about this and maybe even change um the party that you're voting for in in your respective like uh place of living and in germany we have like many parties to choose from i know in like several countries especially in the u.s where we have um at least a lot of readers i know are from the u.s i don't know how many listeners we have from there but there was a two-party system it might be sometimes harder mm. to find like who do you vote for to fight the climate change it's probably not the republicans <laughs> but um that's just as my perspective from here um Uh, so yeah get political stop shaming people for individual actions i've seen also a lot of people just putting a lot on, of energy into shaming people for flying to a destination mm. or for using plastic straws and so on and don't use that energy to shame people for their individual actions use that energy to shame your representatives for not fighting the climate crisis this is sort of what i want to like make a call out for yeah and there's a lot of really big companies with billions of dollars who are already lobbying the government to get their way which is not the the good way so we need to be lobbying in the other direction and if nothing else our lobbying will hopefully keep things from getting worse yeah but The idea is to lobby hard enough that we can beat these these dollars and, yeah. and move it in the positive direction. So support people who take political action, um, and if you can't take your the, the action yourself because it's also a commitment. Like I try to reach out to my representative, and I got a very nice lady on the phone. Um, he's a conservative, so I didn't have high hopes for um, his specific agenda. But like I talked to his secretary or campaign worker or i don't know exactly what her role was and she was really nice and she asked me that to to uh, also write an email and then like i might get a response to that and i didn't get anything from them so sure. i think i will uh, i i have to call again um and i wanted to talk to a representative himself but yeah um i couldn't get him on the phone so far but maybe that's something figure out if that's in in your country an option to just directly call your representative and ask him or her Uh, what she or he is doing for the or against the climate change specifically yeah so with, <laughs> to, with the that, plants, to the puppets yeah let's let's leave the political field uh the political agenda that we have mm. um always pushing that agenda yeah that horrible agenda of protecting the climate and saving the planet it's like a terrible agenda the paper of the week 
this paper uh, this this week it's my paper and i just realized i took a lot of notes without uh, writing down the name of the paper <laughs> <laughs> um so uh give me a second you can and just give again, me keywords and i can try googling no, I, it. I i have the pdf here okay. um so it's a widespread occur uh, occurrence of natural genetic transformation of plants by agrobacterium um it's Wait. from Okay. Mm -hmm. Two authors from uh, Tatiana Matviva and Leon Otten, and it's been published in Plant Molecular Biology um, this June in 2019. Yeah, and they are from uh, Strasbourg and Saint Pe Saint Petersburg, so a French-Russian cooperation. Uh, a cool um, paper. So, yeah, what you you wanted to guess something from the title? No, I was saying if you couldn't find that, you ah. could like give me the keywords and I could try to see if by the end of the podcast I could work out the title of the paper. Yeah. <laughs> it was a terrible idea. Please continue. <laughs> Maybe for next next time we can do I'm that. I'm going to sit quietly and nod for the rest of the podcast, okay? <laughs> then, um, yeah, that would be a very interesting podcast and uh, like a very long monologue from mm -hmm. me. Um, so, yeah, so this is about natural genetic transformation of plants we need like an oh no gmo buzzer like i just hit it like oh no gmo oh no gmo can we do that yeah we can do that um <laughs> we can become one of those terrible radio stations where like everything like, oh, 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 oh. <laughs> i i used to have no i don't have it anymore i used to have an air horn button then at least i could have like oh, that's a, bah, 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 oh bah. no it's too loud people have been deafened now <laughs> um so uh yeah so uh this this paper talks about natural genetic transformation oh no gmo and um this deals with the idea of horizontal gene transfer um do you want to like say a few words what horizontal gene transfer is uh it's when genes are moved from one species into another species basically Yes, exactly. And we find that very often in um, prokaryotes. So that's bacteria and things like bacteria. Mm. Uh, because they, like the entire machinery is so simple and they have evolved many different mechanisms to like straight up exchange DNA or they can take up DNA from like a degraded bacterium and integrate it into their own genome. And um, it can be a really great idea, a great way to adapt. So you can steal somebody else's DNA and then happen to get like a really cool functional gene and, and gain new functions. It's a little bit more complicated, but... Yeah, but resistance genes, for example, um, between E. coli are very often inherited this way between like asexual um, uh, transformation. Like a little bit of snuggling and then passing yeah. of the genes. and They have like these pili, I think is the word, where they... Yeah, little like highways that they build from between the cells and then they just squeeze the dna from one cell to the other and then they exchange this dna so yeah in prokaryotes we see this a, uh, a lot and in parasitic plants it's pretty common as well so parasites they're often like stealing other things from their hosts or like sugars or whatever they need and then often they happen to take up some dna and some nuclear acids and yeah sometimes they integrate it into their genome and yeah, it says in eukaryotes is also when you look at the ge um, genetic evolution, you very often find genes that uh, sort of just appear on an evolutionary timescale. Um, you like you don't find them in in uh, close relatives, and it suddenly appears, and then like all further like t downstream species, they also have that gene, and it tells you that this must have been introduced at one point. Yeah, and the probably. gene like looks like something that belongs to a completely different organism, like way across the phylogenetic tree. Yeah, and then you s then the yeah, it's very likely that this was a horizontal gene transfer event. 
Um, so what's very rare, however, is the transfer between prokaryotic genes to eukaryotic cells. Um, so if you think like a bacterium mm -hmm. putting some piece of its DNA uh, into, let's say, in this case, a plant, um, and then it stays there and it becomes part of the lineage. Um, I could guess that maybe this is because often they don't want that because it's usually something that's going to attack them. So they have a lot of defense mechanisms. The eukaryotes have defense mechanisms to recognize the foreign DNA and yeah. get rid of it, maybe. This is one, one one factor, definitely. The other is that they are often very different mm -hmm. in terms of, like, there's things like codon usage. So the types of, of, like, the DNA code is slightly different between prokaryotes and eukaryotes, or actually between species often as well. And so, like, a bacterial gene must, might just not work in a plant, and mm -hmm. so the plant has no reason to keep it. So even if it gets integrated, it's not kept around um, from generation to generation. It's very quickly lost. Um or mutated uh, uh, so yeah there's several factors that sort of make it less likely but there's one very famous horizontal gene transfer in plants with bacteria dun, 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 dun. agrobacterium yes agrobacterium um, it's uh, a bacterium like it's a, a family of species um, that uh, induce like the very well known one is the Tumefaciens that induces these crown galls, galls. Yeah, huge swollen. Like it makes the trees look like they're pregnant. They have these huge, like round protrusions coming out of them just from the infection. And they make that they manage that by introducing their DNA into the in this case the tree's DNA and make the tree like change its growth behavior, produce certain compounds that are used then by the bacterium to grow. Um, and there it's like actively putting its genes into the gene into the genome of the tree. Um, however, this is happening in sort of the somatic tissue. Like mm -hmm. these cells usually don't become new trees. So you don't see like the, the genes that are integrated um, are not found then if it's an oak tree that you don't find them in it the It doesn't acorn. get passed on to the next generation. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so um, the thing that's needed to get from like this to get this gene insertion event carried over into the next generation is, is a spontaneous regeneration. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is what something that we also use in the lab when we um, cut up, like we transform leaf cells and then we cut up the leaf and then we put it on specific media with very specific conditions and then we can regenerate a whole plant from a leaf piece. And we usually cheat and we use hormones which tell that piece of leaf that something, the, the situation is different. So it's like, hey, you're not a leaf, you should be making roots now, you're going to be a whole plant. And we kind of trick it into becoming a plant, which I guess is a bit harder in the wild. Yeah, but we also sometimes see that when you have like new plants emerging from root pieces or mm -hmm. like um, uh, saplings or other things where you have like, yeah, you see it also in like uh, house plants, right? Like sometimes you just take a cutting, you put that in water, it makes roots and a new plant. And that could also happen in the wild. I like also that some species like if you have a bit of their stem, if you just wrap some cloth around or like some soil and some cloth and some dark, like dark and damp, it's enough to convince them that this is no longer like part of the aerial tissue. It should be underground and therefore they start making roots. They're like, mm. oh, I, I must be underground. I, I, I must be a root now. And they start making roots uh, out of the, the stems. Yeah. And so this is something that happened um, like evolutionary also in the past with um, plants that uh, you had spontaneous regenerations from cells that were infected uh, with agrobacterium where agrobacterium had uh, put its DNA into the, the plant and then from this infected tissue new plants emerged and they became like and it was stably integrated and from then on passed on through the generations um, 
And whenever this happens, we talk about ctDNA, um, which is cellular tDNA. Mm -hmm. And the tDNA is the transfer DNA, the DNA that is transferred from the bacterium into the plant. And mm -hmm. then it's um, and to distinguish it from just like sort of the one that is not stably integrated, then it's the ctDNA. And um, the result of these are natural GMO. Because mm -hmm. these are genetically modified organisms that are not created in a lab. They just they happen by chance um, uh, in in the wild. Uh, and the authors, um, they suggested uh, already in 2017 in a different paper that I had a look at, um, they suggested uh, that this can lead to new species formations because this might be this integration of DNA might be enough to drive a species away sort of from its predecessor and then um, become a new species in itself. So it might be a major driving force for evolution. Um, so, for example, in tobacco, we have uh, six known ctDNA fragments still in the genome. So, six places uh, where we see fragments of bacterial DNA that are still there to this day. Yes, I didn't know. This is cool. Um, and, yeah, mostly, uh, so the question is now, so what are these tDNA pieces that they integrate, right? Like the tDNA... Um, works like this, that you have a, a flanking regions, the left and right border, and then you have in between a couple of genes that the bacterium wants to put into the plant so that the plant changes its growth behavior and produces nutrients for the bacterium. Mm -hmm. um, and some of them are genes that are just related for this integration. It's the plus genes uh, for the plasticity uh, of the genome. Mm -hmm. um, so they are responsible for the integration uh, of that foreign piece of DNA into the plant genome. And I think these are also the genes that we use in the lab then for or, uh, as a technique, technique to introduce foreign DNA into plant genomes. Mm -hmm. um, and the other genes that you find in there are opine or opine genes um, that uh, create opines, which is a group of compound uh, of, of, of metabolites um, that are useful for the bacterium that it uses as a sort of, uh, I think as an energy source, but I'm not fully sure. Uh, Sounds kind of hormony. Okay. Yeah, but it's it's very important for the bacterial growth and um, it, the plant, <laughs> it doesn't do anything for the plant. So uh, the interesting thing now is that we can still find these opine genes in different plant species. Or like for, for example, I think um, in, in tobacco as well, there are some like fragments of these opine genes. Can I mention that I just tried to Google opine and it says that it's a verb, which is to hold and state as one's opinion. The man's a genius, he opined. <laughs> Okay, that's all I wanted to say. <laughs> no, uh, I found from Wikipedia. Yeah, they're used by the bacteria as an important energy, carbon, and nitrogen source. Yeah. Okay. And so, yeah, plants don't really want to make them, but the bacterium convinces them with genes to um, create to to. Ah, okay, to so it's, them. A, it's a bunch of enzymes that it it shoves into the yeah. plant to make something that the plant would normally make into something that's basically only accessible for the agro. Yeah. Okay. And mm -hmm. this helps the bacteria uh, with their growth, and it's a very interesting marker for us now to um, see these traces. And so, what they did in this study um, is actually um, it's. From from the structure, a fairly simple experiment, but it was I, I I think they did it in a in a clever way that they could get such a large 
uh, finding from it. So they used a tool that's uh, called the TBLASTN, mm -hmm. which is um, a, a BLAST algorithm, which uh, looks for sequence similarities between like a query sequence that can be short or long um, in a reference genome. Mm -hmm. um, and usually we use that, like I first used that, I think, to design primers. I had like an oligo, like 20 nucleotides, and uh, like in, in uni, we would BLAST that like, um, against the human genome to find like how often would that primer bind and is this a useful ah. PCR primer or not? Does it have off-target sites or not? Uh, and then we learned primer design using this this algorithm. Um, but you can also do more things with that. So, And what they did is they took the um, genes from um, the, the different genes from the tDNA, so the opine genes and the plus genes, and they took the amino acid sequences and blasted this against the nucleotide sequences um, sort of in a reverse um, uh, I, I know actually they did it the other way around they used the, the uh, DNA sequences of the bacterium and they were then tra sort of translated in silico so in the computer into the corresponding protein sequences mm -hmm. and then they were blasted against the the trend in uh, in silico transcribed protein sequences from different plant genomes so okay. you take a plant gene and in the computer you say this plant gene has these like these dna nucleotides and they encode a protein with amino acids mm -hmm. and you do that because um the if you would just compare the the bacterial genes to the plant genes you probably wouldn't find a match because they uh, evolved mm -hmm. and changed but as long as the, the the there's some leeway in the codon usage so in the in the code in the way the dna is interpreted that um slight changes still make the same protein yeah but if you compare the two sequences they look different so with an algorithm looking at just the dna sequences you find no match but if you then look at the the proteins that are made from this then you find a match because it's still the same protein yeah so this is basically the fact that um there are different codons. This is like three um, DNA or ultimately RNA. Um, and each of those makes up an amino acid. But as it turns out, there's only like 20 amino acids, but there's like 60 combinations of, of codons. So there's a lot of redundancy. So if you want to make the amino acid, let's look for something now, like um, serine, you can either have UCU, UCC, UCA, or UC or UCG maybe and all of those will make serine so there could still be a serine at the protein level but in the Arabidopsis or whatever plant genome it's now changed from being the original UCC to being a UCU or something like this yeah yeah exactly and because that can happen for any of the amino acid positions you get um, quite a big change it becomes in the kind of nonsense if you look just from the yeah yeah and so using this um, this algorithm, they were then able to look at, 200, at 275 plant genomes mm -hmm. and just blast these query sequences of this agrobacterium genes against that. Um, they, is that everything we have now? How many plant genomes do you think we have now? Um, so they, what they use is were all dicot genes. Okay. So um, dicotyledonous plants. So these are all the, I always remember this as the non-grass plants. Pretty the, much, yeah. Like, the, like when the plant... The, the seedlings emerge they can either bring like one um cotyledon which is the first like it's not a true leaf it's a like a seedling leaf mm -hmm. which is called cotyledon and if it brings one of them then it's like a grass mm -hmm. like for or maize for monocot, example yeah. that's a monocot and if it brings two of them then it's a dicot um and these are many yeah. other species so a lot of our crops are monocots because they're kind of grasses like yeah maize and, and this kind of thing but basically all tree species are dicots so yeah 
and many house plants and mm. ma like to me dicots are most plants that i usually look at as plants until i realize ah this is actually a grassy <laughs> plant and it's a monocot um but so, i guess things like arums like they would not be they would be monocots this is not relevant carry yeah. on <laughs> but so they use this like the set of 275 um and they the first thing they had to do here is to control for contamination because these genomes they were created by taking dna sample from the plant dropping it into a machine that reads all of the dna and then mm -hmm. in a computer it's assembled into a genome and if you have some bacteria sitting on your leaf when you take the sample yeah. you also sequence the bacteria genome and i guess bacteria don't just sit on the leaf but they also get inside in the, leaf the leaf and into the and cells of the leaf or on your tools or like there's many sources for bacteria contamination your eyebrows guys have you ever seen videos about how much stuff is in your eyebrows it is disgusting it's not just bacteria it's bugs it's things that move in and out of your eyebrows while you sleep that's why we shaved them off Public here at the plants and pets <laughs> podcast the podcast with no eyebrows yeah that's our little tagline <laughs> um eyebrows are terrifying uh, so they looked for some sequences of the agrobacterium genome that's not part of the tDNA. So like the agrobacterium puts some of its DNA into the plant and keeps some for itself easily, mm -hmm. like put to put it simply. And they look for the part that it keeps to, them, to itself. And so whenever you would find these sequences, it means you have contamination. If you mm -hmm. don't find these sequences, but you find the tDNA genes, then you don't have contamination. Then it's because it's integrated into um, the plant. Uh, and... Yeah, so the, the findings were that from these 275 species that they looked at, they had 23 species um, that had uh, fragments of DNA in them. That's a roughly 7% of all um, sequence uh, of, yeah, 7% of the... The dicots they looked at. Of the dicots they looked at uh, carry these. Mm -hmm. um, and in the paper, they go in, in great detail into like the different kinds there. Um, I summarize this in like there's some of them that only have the opine genes, um, then some of them have the, just the plus genes, some of them have the plus and the opine genes, and um, more complex combination of those. Interestingly, is that many of the genes that were inserted uh, were not functional anymore, although some of them were. Whether mm -hmm. they were still actively transcribed is something they couldn't look at with their method. So. When a gene is in a genome, it doesn't mean that it's also like made into a protein mm -hmm. because there's other things necessary for that, right? You yeah. need like an active transcription and then the mRNA has to be then also processed by the ribosome and there's many sort of like safeguards and controls there that have to match. And if they don't, then you just have nothing So happening. the ones that they say that they definitely couldn't be made, it's ones which either don't have the elements to make them transcribed in the first place, so no promoter, or the protein sequence is interrupted, like there's there's not a start sequence or there's a stop too early in the protein, something like this. Yeah, and this is what they saw very often, like the a shift of the of stop codons or start codons, sort of so the start and the end points of the gene. Um, they were often shifted in the the pieces that they still found in the uh, in the genome so a lot of them um, apparently are not functional anymore but some of them were still were functional I mean and the it's quite like to me it's it's quite simple the the, the reason behind this is because the plant doesn't get any advantage of producing these genes like mm -hmm. these opines they're made for the bacterium the plant doesn't care about opines so it uh it's not an evolutionary advantage to keep them on and it's not a disadvantage to mutate them randomly. So mm -hmm. that's why they, over time, lose their function uh, very often. There could be some advantages of like having parts of them that you could use it like to detect when 
a new invasion happened. Like there's this common kind of mechanism of RNA silencing where you like yeah. copy a bit of the gene and then use it to like block new genes coming in. Yeah. Mm. Anyway. Yeah, I mean, they didn't, as they just looked at it through this algorithm, they didn't go into like any like residual, like f like see if it has any effect on fitness, mm. right? Um, because all of these, like many of the plants that we have genomes for are crop plants. So apparently they, they are fit, like we use them and they grow well. But is there, so the, the opines themselves are basically useless, but is there anything else that they could conceivably say from the, the agro could be useful? So like, okay, getting opines is not useful, but or getting the enzymes to make opines is not useful, but maybe this other thing from the agro could be useful. They didn't really go into this in in the paper because I mean mostly like the agrobacterium has genes to get like genetic gene transfer from its genome into the plant genome mm. and it has genes that makes the opines to get energy out of the plant into the bacterium so I don't know how much uh, room is the, is in there that could potentially be beneficial but yeah they just didn't they didn't go in there into But mostly this. what they're just seeing is scars basically like of something that happened in the past. Yeah. And uh, another thing that they, they saw is quite, to me, it was quite interesting is that you could tell from the results that they got um, parts of the mechanism of how the insertion works. I mean, we knew that before, so they didn't find that, but they sort of saw these traces again um, because they saw way more um, fragments of these opine genes than compared to the plus genes. Mm -hmm. And the reason is, uh, if you imagine the, the setup of this tDNA, you have the left border, then you have the plus genes, then you have the opine genes, and then you have the right border. Okay. And the integration happens from the right border to the left border. So if the integration is not complete, um, then you just get the opine genes. They're just the first mm -hmm. thing that gets inserted, and then the plus genes. And so just by chance, whenever like this process is um, a, a breaks or there's a mistake happening then you might have already like the opine genes in there but then th the bacterium didn't manage to get the rest of its genome in there and just found it interesting to see like this completely like they didn't look for this but just by carefully looking at the data set this is like one of the things they could reconstruct from it uh, that was also already previously known mm. um so they also they also looked at monocots, um, but they only briefly mentioned that because there they found much less um, uh, fragments. They only found, I think, in uh, one species or two species out of like another 150 mm -hmm. that they that they looked at. So much. I lower wonder if that's that makes monocots less likely to be infected. Maybe they just generally like they're slow growing, like uh, faster growing species. They have a quicker generation time, so the chance of getting this like outshoot yeah. is less likely. Like if you're if you're a big tree then often you have enough resources to make a new shoot from a trunk. Whereas if you're something like a grass, probably you just die and start again, yeah, right? Yeah, you don't like, regenerate. You don't have the spontaneous yeah. regeneration happening as often. That's very possible. Um, uh, yeah, and the the last like sort of bullet point that I want to mention here uh, before we look at this a bit more in general is um, that they... One of the, I didn't go through all of the species that I looked at, but one of them that I looked at, for example, is peanut. And, um, is it a mono or a dicot? It's a dicot. Mm -hmm. And it's, uh, yeah, it also has these traces of, of tDNA and it has like some opine gene traces in it. Uh, I don't know if they were still functional, but it's a GMO um, for that. So if <gasps> you find like a packaging that says like GMO free peanuts, What's it? it's oh, just no, a lie. Oh no, GMO. <laughs> that was <bad>. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we really need that jingle, but yeah. So there's no such thing. This should be the the blog. There's no such thing as a non-GMO peanut. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, in general, like they they uh, sort of extrapolate from the data that they have. They have roughly seven percent of the diecodes in the database have these uh, are GMO, are natural GMO. Mm. Um, so if you extrapolate that, that's like uh, hundreds and thousands of of species. Mm-hmm. If you have seven percent of all diecodes in the world, roughly. Um, even if it's just five percent of them, even if they're overestimated a little bit, um, it's a lot of natural GMO out there, and we don't see anything terrible happening from them because GMOs are not inherent. GMO oh, are no, not inherently GMO. bad from the fact that they're GMO. It mm. depends like what genes they are, mm-hmm. which is to us it's very clear. But I find it important to stress here that, like, just the fact that a GMO exists doesn't tell anything about its danger to like i don't know to humans to the ecosystem to whatever like it doesn't like the yeah. presence or absence of gmo doesn't mean anything you really have to look at like what is the transgene yeah it's like saying does not contain yellow or does not contain yeah. like, i mean it's it's arbitrary yeah um so yeah so nice. this is this is a paper showing that you're 7%. all eating gmo peanuts you guys yeah Spit out those peanuts. Whoever's <laughs> eating peanuts, I mean, who's eating peanuts? Peanuts are terrible. I like peanuts a lot. Oh, like roasted I actually, and salted. I have some peanuts to 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 let you try. <laughs> okay, hang let on. me have some GMO peanuts. Okay, hang on a second. Later that same evening. Oh no! I don't <laughs> want to eat them. Yeah. Okay. There's nothing wrong with them. They're edible. Yeah, they're probably edible, but they're wet, like because they've been sitting in the open. They've been sitting for one day outside. Okay, if it's, I trust you that it's just one day because like they yesterday, feel sticky. Yesterday I ate them and I decided that was disgusting and I didn't want to eat them because they taste like moths. No, they don't taste like moths. They just... I don't They have a weird spice to them. The secret flavor is Australia. Okay. They're Vegemite-flavored peanuts. <laughs> there is nothing that people will not do. Vegemite-flavored cookies, Vegemite-flavored chocolate... Now, Vegemite-flavored GMO peanuts. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's a good party trick to just go to people and like, want to try a GMO peanut and then just give them a regular peanut because mm. they're all GMO. Uh, so do that and be like this annoying friend at a party that people <laughs> like, try to avoid. Do you want the GMO peanut or the non-GMO peanut? And when they say like non-GMO, just like laugh at them and then run off. Like, and be like, all GMO. <laughs> Memory is uh, RAM. Scientists making friends around the world. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay, cool. Um, I actually have to get another prop for part of show and tell, which is the, my favorite plant. So okay, you have to put a pause pot, in the podcast. Uh, I eat another sticky Vegemite peanut. Um, I'm just thinking of d- different like party topics, like annoying, annoying um, knowledge that you can drop from this paper, maybe. So just go maybe around to pl- the house and count all of the diecots and say 7% of the house plants that probably have GMO in them or are GMO. Okay, then I can play the jingle. Yay! These peanuts are okay and terrible at the same time. I think that's the thing about peanuts. They're like, they're more favorite plant, but they're also disgusting. Yeah. I had like my my ex's one of his friends thought that peanut was the king of nuts. Like he literally thought peanut was the best no, nut. No, cashew which, is the best nut. Yeah, you should just stop being friends with somebody who thinks that like peanut is the best nut. Yeah, it's just not okay. Yeah. All right. My favorite plant today is this, and this is a, a prop-based podcast, so I'm handing Yoram a small wooden box. Yeah, and it looks like something that usually most people would keep weed in, um, but <laughs> I'm very sad that it's no weed in It has in like here. an orchid seed inside. Okay, so I want you to put your face really close and smell deeply. Okay, but I still have peanut stuff in my nut. Yeah, but hopefully... 
It smells like smoky or something. Maybe smell the lid. Maybe that's better. Is this is this vanilla? No. This is an orchid seed, which happens to be in there. It's irrelevant. Ah, okay. So it's the wood that I'm smelling. <laughs> You're smelling the wood. Ah, okay. Okay. <laughs> because <laughs> vanilla is, a, is an orchid, right? Yes. I okay. So what you're mismatching? It's uh, it's oaky and fruity um, and has a hint of chocolatey. <laughs> well done. It doesn't smell anything like chocolate. You. <laughs> mm, it's so nice to me. Um, okay. So this small wooden box is something that my mother actually gave to me um, because ever since I moved to Germany about seven years ago, my mother has become obsessed with the idea that I might be missing Australia and constantly brings me things from home. And you're like, I don't miss any of this. <laughs> I mean, I do some of the things, um, but I have more Australian paraphernalia than you could ever imagine. And you would like... You're pretty much like a gift shop. <laughs> yeah. And some stuff I'm not really sure about because like... The Australian flag is a little bit controversial now. Like it's it's got the Union Jack as the main thing. It doesn't really like represent our indigenous people. And now I have like a lot of things with the Australian flag on them. And nationalism, guys, it's not great. If you feel like nationalism is great, you need to rethink your life and think yeah. like maybe there are other hobbies that you could funnel your time and your energy into that are not nationalism. Yeah. Um Yeah, I would be super weirded out if I like I mean, I'm friends with a lot of expats because of the Institute. There's lots of people from, from all over the world and they bring stuff from home and often it's like branded with like the flags and so on. And I'm just okay with it because it's not in my home country. So mm. I just see them as sort of decorative flags. But if I would imagine I would have the same amount of German flags in my home, I would feel very weird. If I would yeah, visit so there's a friend- something that maybe if you're a non-German in the audience, you should know like... In Germany, up until about 10 years ago, having the flag was completely not okay. Any kind of nationalism was basically seen as Nazism. It was like, what is wrong? You should not do that. And then maybe 10 or 15 years ago, it started to become a bit more of a thing because of the football. Yep. So people were allowed to show the, the, the flag and like wear it on their face and do all the other thing that all of the rest of us do obnoxiously in our own countries. But only during the football season. So like during the football season, hundreds of flags go up. And the day after Germany gets kicked out of the football... They all come down again. Unfortunately, not all of them Pretty come much. down anymore. Yeah, and this is the thing. Like, the ones who don't bring their flags down, everybody's like, mmm, mmm, I, I don't know what, mmm. Yeah, <laughs> we should be careful about how he's voting next year. Yeah, we had these car flags. I think they must exist everywhere. Probably a very cheap merchandise item that you stick mm. in your window. Yeah. And you still see them going around to now. But And if it's not football season, then you just see these cars and like, oh, shit. <laughs> like, so this is like, there was a thing in Australia about like maybe five years ago, even now, where a lady, um, uh, I mean, a scientist, I should say, she actually... <laughs> I remember she was a lady because she got a lot of hate speech against her. So this will come later. Oh, yeah. um, she was also a foreign lady or a foreign looking lady, at least. So um, she found that people who had these flags on their window and all these bullshit decorations on their car were more likely to be a little bit racist. Yeah. She wasn't saying that buying a flag made you a racist. Yeah. She was just saying there was a correlation. Yeah. Nobody used the word causation yeah. between having a flag and maybe hating foreigners. <laughs> And the response was that she was a stupid foreign woman and she should get the fuck out. Like, this yeah. was like the immediate response was approving her point. Yeah. That, like, actually, you are. I have a flag and I'm not a racist, but you foreigners must leave our country. Yes. How dare you foreigners tell us that I'm a racist because you don't even belong yeah. here. And yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> back, back to, to the, the fair of lands. So, um, the box is one of the rather lovely things that my mum has given me. It's made out of hue and pine. 
And Huon pine is a tree that grows in Tasmania, and it's very famous for its its scents. So it's a conifer. It's native to the the western of Tasmania. For those of you who don't know, Australia is like a big continent that's kind of like an island sitting at the bottom of it, like doing nothing. That's New Zealand, right? <laughs> Fuck off. Uh, <laughs> this is not funny. <laughs> My father is from Tasmania. How dare you? <laughs> I, know, I, I actually wanted to insult the New Zealanders. <laughs> oh, yeah. That would actually be worse for them. Yeah, Tasmania is also a bit of an in-joke in Australia. There's like this kind of, um, I think the Welsh get it in, in the UK. Mm-hmm. Like this, like they breed with their cousins kind of. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, it's a very small island. Um, so it's called Hue and Pine. It's uh, Lagastrobus Frank Franklinii, I guess mm-hmm. is the name. Um, and it's basically famous for having this beautiful smelling wood. So it says it's like it's prized for its golden color. So as you can see, it has this quite um, light color, but it's yeah. kind of um, like shiny almost. It's quite beautiful. Um, and it's different from other Australians' woods, which are hard and angry and won't burn <laughs> and like will break your axe if you try to cut into them i'm looking at you jared jared you're a problem <laughs> um, yeah but it's, it's really lovely and it has a really nice scent um so the scent actually comes from a chemical inside it obviously it's methyl um eugenol is what it's called and it's There's supposed chemicals to in there chemicals <laughs> I, did i just inhale chemicals you, i did i tricked you into inhaling chemicals <gasps> just after you ate my gmo peanuts <laughs> Australia is trying to poison all of the Europeans. Um, yeah, so it gives it the the unique smell and it also has some sort of preservative um, activity. And there's also some talk that maybe um, generally methyl um, eugenol might act to attract pollinators and have like some other features. Like it smells nice to me, but from what I know about pollinators, mostly they like things that smell like rotting flesh. So I'm not sure. Like, like probably it depends on the pollinator, right? I, like, I guess most bees flies like flowers. Yeah, bees like flowers, though, right? Yeah. Like, I don't know if they're perfume. Oh, it would be a horrible world if all of the everything all of flowers, with flies. <laughs> no, yeah, everything would smell of like feces and rotting flesh yeah. because they want to attract the flies. But that could be our future. We kill all the bees accidentally, and then yeah. and then we then have we evolutionary only have pressure that, fly, <laughs> that flies, and then. <laughs> Yeah. Uh. Okay. Um. So the, basically, the other thing that is cool about it is that it's Australian, which means it's unique, and there's nothing else like it in the world. So it belongs to the genus Lagarostrobus, and there's nothing else in the genus. It's the only species in the genus. Uh. There used to be a, t- a New Zealander plant in the genus, but then we realized we were wrong, and we took it out and we said, "Go over there. You're a different <laughs> plant." <laughs> Um, yeah, so I really like it. Um, yeah, it's cool. There are also some of the oldest organisms on, on Earth, according to Wikipedia. So they, they live... There was a stand of trees which were found to be 10,000 years old. It's quite old, right? That's that's quite old, yeah. It's older than me. It's pretty... Yeah. Yeah, but they have like this kind of vegetative reproduction thing where they're like a stand. So they're kind of coming up from hmm. the, the shooting from the bottom. But mostly, yeah, I just like the smell. Yeah. It's pretty nice. That's That's really nice. It smells like home. Thanks. Okay, that's it. Thank you. Diversity in the plants. Science. Uh, diversity in plant science. Um, <laughs> it's your own turn. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. I just had a carbonated uh, beverage. I hope that you bring some show and tell. I've brought you peanuts and I've brought you wood to smell. What I, are you giving me? I don't have any... Sh- I have something I can show you later, but it's still on la- on, on the computer machine. Okay. I'm not good with computer machines. Yeah. Uh, my my person that I want to present today uh, is called Vangari Muta Matai. Um, she's an African woman um, who 
uh, from from Kenya. I I really have to stop just saying Africa because like, it's not I a would, country. I wouldn't say like just European. Although like part of me thinks that we should be saying Europe. Like for the for the EU to work, we should be saying not I'm German, but like I'm European, and That's that would true. actually be like better. Yeah, but in this case, I want to acknowledge that she's from Kenya. Yeah, but in this um, case, you're probably a colonialist. Uh, yeah. Um, she uh, was trained in biology, biological science, has a, a bachelor in biology, a master's degree in biological sciences, and a PhD in veterinar- veterinary anatomy. Animals. Animals. Um, but she's mostly known for being a political activist and the first African woman to win the Nobel Prize for peace. Oh, great. Um, for peace. Yeah. Uh, she was very heavily involved in... Um, during her activism like the Wikipedia article is, is very long she was involved in many things but one of the things that stu- uh, stood out for me was the Green Belt movement which was uh, related to the Great Green Wall that we talked about in a previous episode mm-hmm. um, she was involved in teaching especially women um, to plant trees uh, to um, to uh, protect the ecosystems in the immediate neighborhoods and surroundings so she was a great proponent of yeah of sustainable like small-scale agriculture and was specifically helping other women with um um yeah with with taking good care of the land that they were living on um and yeah she passed away in 2011 uh and what else do i have here that so the peace prize was related to this green belt and this i think so (laughs) i I believe you yarm yeah um she was yeah she she got the Nobel Peace Prize in 2004 um and uh, uh uh sorry I'm a little bit slow today and uh, the other thing no I think that's all I wanted to say but have a look um at her Wikipedia page it's um she was involved in a lot of things was like democratic movements and so on so she was a really cool person um pushing for like sort of progress in many areas, mm-hmm. but also like having the, uh, a heart for like e- uh, ecology and protecting sort of ecosystems that people are living on. Yeah, great. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of the answer is not like if you're like pro-feminism, you should probably also be a little bit anti-capitalism and a little bit like pro the environment. Like there's like yeah. all these things kind of locking together in the end. Yeah. Like you can't be against one and pro the other. So... And like purely, I mean, you can. We're complex human beings, but 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 yeah, I, I often find that people like I see that like in in the German plant science bubble, um, there's a lot of talk just about how we all have to use CRISPR for plant breeding, mm-hmm. and it's a very like narrow focus on this topic, while it touches so many related topics like in larger politics with like society, the type of agriculture that we want to do as a society, um, the type of like innovation we want to have. Do we want to have like large global players running innovation? Do we want to have it in in the public sector? There's a lot of like issues that are related to that and hardly any of them are addressed. Most of them is just like, hey, it's a cool technique and we have to use that in plant breeding Mm -hmm. because it's a cool technique. Um, And so I always am very impressed by people who manage to like see bigger pictures and be like our activists like in related fields like like with her who was involved in like many things that all interconnected to around like very similar issues Mm -hmm. and only by addressing like these multiple points you actually get change. Um, I had a question which was related to the big global players that you mentioned. If you had a choice right now, 
to let either your government make choices about how science money was spent or Bill Gates make all Bill Gates make all of those choices who would you let make the choices right now mm. i think right now i would take bill gates i mean he would still like he still makes wrong decisions mm. but not nowhere close the wrong decisions that our current government does this is weird right like to me it's like it's concerning that this is like that the the oligarchy is the better system right now i mean just from like no, just for him yeah just for this one person i would say i mean in general whenever you see, like i wouldn't give J jeff Bezos or Elon <laughs> musk <laughs> the same power no and but jeff would just take all the money for him like jeff has donated like no money to charity i think yeah, now he's doing better off the divorce everybody sees elon musk as a sort of like push pusher of science of like technology and like technology and engineering like everybody when you say like, everyone do you mean like like, rich white men because that might be no, not, not rich but white men like yeah. for white men he's the savior with his innovations I'm um, not super pro him no offense Elon I'm sure you're lovely but no he's not lovely I don't think he's lovely <laughs> no I I don't have much good things to say about him but uh, um, he's like yep. a face doesn't he <laughs> all right no, but in general, <laughs> we're going straight I to the ad hominem attacks no, I'm just saying like from like the rich influential people at the uh, at the moment Bill like, Gates, is, Bill the one Gates is one of the very few people where I would have like mm. where I would be optimistic about the future if he would have more power mm. um, while for most people you, you can just see it straight up like how like I've seen a number for Jeff Bezos like he could give everybody working for Amazon in the US I think 250,000 euros uh, mm -hmm. dollars and he would still be a billionaire yeah so yeah he's got the worst track record out of all i mean i think since the when he got divorced um mackenzie so his ex-wife gave like pledged a lot of her like divorce settlement wealth and she also earned that shit so let's not be bitching about that um she, like she then committed a lot of that to charity and after that i think he did some commitments but before that it was like 0.02 percent or something like just so shamefully low that it was just like I yeah, know. yeah, and um, so yeah, I don't, I don't believe in this system of uh, uh, this, this. Guys, pledge a small amount to a small percentage of your your income to charity. Yeah, please. If do you're that. in doubt about which charity you should donate to, how about birth control? How about education for women? How about like conservation? Yeah. How about? Yeah, my my go to safe place to to support is doctors without borders because i mm. don't think you can say much bad things i mean about if you want to contribute there's a lot of sites online which actually look at where you get the most bang for your buck so if you're something like i want to save lives yeah. you can say well with this one for one dollar you can save an entire life so this is your best like yeah. money for like deworming is like really like yeah. the best or like like um vitamin a or something like this anyway let's go to fun facts i think uh, yeah let's let's go <laughs> to fun facts i have so many this fun facts I like that a lot. <laughs> it's a very cheap drop, like like due to my very limited abilities with music production. But I like that. <laughs> I'm, I'm happy that you like it. Okay, first up, let's go back to Australia. Can I go back to Australia? Yeah, I mean, that's all you talk about. You have a pretty like one-trick pony about yeah. Australia. I didn't like Australia as much before I left Australia. I'm really afraid if I would ever leave Germany for You're going to become a nationalist. <laughs> that I would be, like look back with nostalgia to Germany. I still think Australia is terrible in many ways. Like we are the worst for treating refugees in the entire world. Like we have great yeah. multiculturalism but we're terribly racist. We should really sort that shit out. Like there are like our environmental situation not great. We're basically digging up our entire like country. A lot of lot of non-great things. Yeah. Oh, good. <laughs> but here's a good thing coming out of Australia. <laughs> um, so as is often the case, um, so quite a while back, 
there were some issues um, with some environmental disruptions which happened because Europeans came and brought a whole lot of things which were basically making problems. Um, cats ate all of our native fauna. Foxes did the same thing. Rabbits competed with them. European culture taking lot, over local cultures. A lot, lot of problems. <laughs> Not ideal. Um, and one of the things they introduced at one point was a cane toad. Now, a cane toad is a big, freaking ugly frog. It's not great. It's disgusting. I've seen that on The Simpsons, right? Yes. Bart brings one. Probably, yes. Yeah. Um, I think in The Simpsons, it's Bart who introduces it. And on the way back, there's like a koala clinging to the the plane. And the koala's like, (laughs) like, now I infect America. Um, Yes. Cane toads came. Cane toads are big, ugly, poisonous toads. But they look like frogs. And a lot of our small marsupials, we have a lot of very small marsupials. At least we have a few which have not yet been eaten by the cats, destroyed by the rats or the rabbits, or also eaten by the foxes, or killed by the humans. Um, They would eat the frogs, the toads, because they thought, "Mm, that's a tasty frog. And then they would die because these toads just excrete poison on their back. And there's basically nothing you can do to to trap them easily. They're quite small. They're hard to control. And they've gradually moved across the country. So they started in the east, but they've now reached my glorious state of Western Australia. Uh. Horrible. Good news. <laughs> um, we have a nice species of rat. A rata? Una rata? Um, a native water rat. And it's kind of big for a rat. It's kind of terrifying. It lives in the water. So this is like... I mean, you already have to be scared of the snakes and the spiders and whatever. Whatever <laughs> you strange or Europeans are always freaking terrified of in Australia. It's you should also the spiders. Like, if you swim, sharks won't get you, but water rats will definitely swim up your like swimming trunks. This is no. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I, I'm too scared to to be sure if that's like if it's a joke or if it's true that. Yaron once told me that every country that's not Germany is filled either with um, what spiders or snakes or spiders or convicts. I think you said, and then Australia is both something like this. <laughs> no, I couldn't think of many countries that are not just convicts or spiders. It must have been I think he else. was just deliberately trying to insult my country. I don't I think there was any like belief or political stand. I think it was just like "fuck you, Australia." I'm never going there. No, I'm 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 severely scared of spiders, so this is really deterring me. Although I'm I'm learning to get better now because no, I, you're not. There was a moth in your house the other day, and you screamed and made your wife get the vacuum cleaner. No, the, yeah, but when you weren't there, there was once where I heroically took out the vacuum cleaner, and right now <laughs> in my my corridor, I have a um a spider sitting like on on the ceiling, like very at eyesight level when you go down the stairs, and I just let him sit there, and I think like <laughs> I like he's not really moving. Maybe he's dead. I don't I don't know. But he's not really moving. No, he's just biding his time until you sleep, and then he's going to crawl into your nasal passage. Yeah, but if I if I'm asleep, then I don't mind, unless he's laying <laughs> eggs. Yeah, um, in your brain or in your like eyelids, like you blink and like baby spiders fall out. That's why I don't like spiders because it's, they, it's the same sound as the the epi's into the bin, like shh. But it's just like <laughs> spiders falling out of your eyelids. I open my <laughs> eyes in the morning, it's like rain, <laughs> constant rain of spiderlings. <laughs> So in contrast to Yoram, when I was a child, I used to find these daddy long leg spiders, so like the tiny body, the really long legs, and also jumping spiders, which are adorable, and bring them from anywhere outside or inside the house into my bedroom. <laughs> like I would try to set up spider colonies in my room because I thought they were so adorable. No, that was, no, <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> back to the cane toads. This is a cane toad, Yoram. It looks angry. Yeah. It looks like Hypnotoad, actually, but like yeah. less hypnotic and more disgusting. Yeah. But to be, to be fair, like, I don't like any toads. 
Yeah. I mean, it looks particularly ugly. I kind of love frogs, but this guy is like pure evil. Uh, even frogs. I, I'm weirded about the fact that frogs have a skeleton because they look like they should just be a slime ball because they like so look so wet and that they have like solid structures in their bodies <laughs> freaks me out. <laughs> okay, and this is a water rat. I'm now showing Yoram a picture, a black and white picture of a water rat which has like evil glowing eyes. Are they? Yeah. 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 yeah it's okay. a big rat in, in the water. In the water, <laughs> as, as the name suggests. Oh, there, it's very cute. No keys, I'm Okay, so the good news is, and this is the entire point, that the conversation, which is an independent journalism site, is quite good. Um, they have shown that native water rats can now have now worked out how to safely eat cane toads. Oh. So finally, some marsupial has figured it out. Don't know what they're doing. They're not really sure. They seem to be selecting the larger of the cane toads. So maybe with the bigger ones, they can like eat from the bottom or something and somehow avoid like the poison sacs on, on the top of the, the frog. But there's now a predator. The, the mighty rat is going to overcome the terrifying toad. Very good. Okay, your turn. <laughs> my, my turn is, um, I have also, I uh, know this is not from the conversation. That's later. Um, I have a thing uh, from Science Mac. Um, where uh, it's about scientists um, who who say that biotech for trees should be allowed in sustainable certification. Um, so this this is a group of scientists, among which many are from Chile. Um, well done, th Chile. That say um, that like trees are such a slow-growing species that pretty much breeding trees for uh, to to adapt them to changing environments is close to impossible because mm -hmm. like yeah just crossing a tree probably takes like several lifetimes of researchers doing that mm -hmm. um, so that's why the, there are techniques like um, biotech tech, te uh, technologies are there amongst which are is genome editing but also traditional um, just transgenics that mm -hmm. you can apply and then you can uh, with with that you can introduce new traits into trees much quicker um, because then you just grow them you just uh, propagate them asexually and then you can much faster go through different uh, generations and, and combine yeah, them and, and the so other on. side of that is if they're taking so long to reach sexual maturity they're not going to spread those those pollen which are maybe genetically modified so people who are scared about like the spreading of the GMOs they're growing so slowly they're not going to do that for a, a long time anyway yeah. so that's also yeah so if you have like these plantations where you very quickly like you you have them grow and you harvest them when it's young trees then you they don't even make pollen yet yeah um but cool. in general like they um uh talk uh here about um uh, they give an example here of the American chestnut, um, which is a, a tree that was wiped out in the 20th century by uh, an uh, introduced pathogen um, that has now been like they have still like it's not found in the wild anymore, but it still exists like in, in labs and botanical gardens and so on. And they have now engineered it to resist um, this pathogen. So it oh, could great. grow again in the wild and it could be like with like climate change but also with other like changes especially with like globalization where we introduce all kinds of pathogens all over the world um we can have resistant like local tree species um growing in in their environments that uh yeah that can survive all of these pathogens but the problem right now is that um all of the certifications for sustainable tree plantations um they all exclude uh, G gm trees mm -hmm. um which was just like when the certifications were set up, this was just like part of the deal, just saying, ah, no GMO. Um, and now, yeah, there's a, there's a group of scientists um, uh, pushing now for the inclusion 
of GM, GMO in sustainable forestry because these are two separate things. These are two separate questions if you run a sustainable forest and if the trees in the forest are GMO. Um, so yeah, that's in Science Mac. Uh, we'll link that in the show notes. I have a suggestion that when we get our oh no GMO um, soundbite, we should also get like a sarcastic kind of clapping like every time like <laughs> humans have done like, I don't know how you sarcastic like. A slow clapping. Like every time humans have done something super stupid, like accidentally introduce a pathogen or like bring yeah. a cane toad into Australia. Like, <laughs> well done. Well done. Okay, I have a very quick one that I found via the Thai E. I don't know what a Thai E is, but their their image, their what is it called? A symbol? A uh, uh, logo? Logo. Their logo has a fish on it. So maybe Thai E is a kind of fish. Who knows? Um, the Thai E is telling me that in order to teach kids how about phytoplankton there's a man called david ng who's from the um university of british columbia which i guess is in canada um and he's made basically pokemon cards which instead of containing pokemon they contain phytoplankton so he's trying to gamify learning about biology which i think is kind of fun and a little part of me i never played yeah. pokemon but a little part of me wants that game yeah uh but it's called yeah. the Philo Project, but we'll when also you link buy it. your child um, file like um, algae or plankton uh, Pokemon cards, make sure you buy it for the entire class. <laughs> Otherwise, you'll just make sure that your kid gets bullied in school when everybody's playing Pokemon, and he's like, "I don't have Pokemon. I have phytoplankton." <laughs> your your child is going to be a nerd no matter what. <laughs> Lean in. <laughs> yeah, I'm just saying I will like make sure that the entire class is nerds, mm. um, so they get bullied by the rest so of the school. Nerd. But within this little <laughs> class, they're all friends. It's like this bizarre clique. <laughs> um, I have uh, from the conversation a short piece, uh, an article about um, how plants do synchronize their internal clocks. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I mo- mostly like it. It stuck with me because it has a very cool animation. Um, I mean, the, we we talked about like in the past already about uh, the circadian clock, which is all about um, a molecular clock that internally um, works in the plant independent of outside stimuli. So mm-hmm. independent of the light regime, if the light goes on and or like if the sun rises and sets or if the temperature rises and drops again, um, this is used to synchronize the clock, but it's still, when you stop this environmental influence, it still keeps running. So that's why it's It's internal. literally a clock. It's that the, the, yeah. the plant knows when dawn should be and when dusk should be so it can prepare things in advance regardless of, of what's actually happening a bit somehow. Yeah, but the question is, how does it synchronize it internally, um, especially across different organs that is not a susceptible, uh, 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 that doesn't see the same environment, like roots in the shoot? How mm-hmm. how do they do that? And here they worked it out by um, looking at the cell to cell signaling, and you sort of have like um, I think in in uh, English it's a Mexican wave. In Germany we call it a laola, mm-hmm. right? When you like people start raising their hands and the people next to them do the same. I and think then our moves. audience knows what that is. Yeah. Um. <laughs> no. Uh, uh, anyway, this is the pretty much the same way this works in the plant as well. Like you have some things that start mm-hmm. um, start the signal, and the neighboring cells do this, and then it sort of goes in waves through the entire plant. Um, and here they have an image of uh, of a time series where they looked at the signals related to like one of the clock components, how it's um, pulsating, and it's just a cool picture of like this glowing um, seedling. Uh, and the entire article is also well well written and goes more into detail about like the the inner workings of this clock. It's very hypnotic the, yeah. the video. 
Um, okay, I have a quick one, which is that the avocado genome has been sequenced. So rejoice, millennials, for you have been saved. <laughs> Um, and another. No, I mean, it's it's no use to know the genome if you don't do anything with it. And we we if, can make it again. Like now, I can I can make avocados, <laughs> and it's probably but, cheaper than the avocado smash avocado sandwich. Yeah, but we can't. Blah like, blah blah. We spend our money on avocados. Blah blah blah. That's why we don't have a deposit for our house. <laughs> Way to go, baby boomers. <laughs> um, and another one is from. So that one was a a article in PNAS, which came out last month in July 2019. Um. There's also something which was published on Alto, I believe is the website. Oh, it's Alto University. Okay. Um, and they basically published something about their recent paper or some research they're doing, which is looking at producing um, new fibers using wood fibers and spider silk combined mm -hmm. to make a new kind of plastic. So it's basically using um, the kind of strength of the wood and the, the stretchability and like the flexibility of the silk to make something that would be a biodegradable plastic. So mm. I think it's early stages from what I can tell, but this is yeah, it, nice that, idea. That sounds cool. And I think I also saw something. Yeah, I think spider silk can now be produced not just from spiders and from silkworms, but we can do it artificially by just... Um, it's basically just a whole lot of um, individual molecules like linked in a chain, so we can yeah, kind of work the, out how to do the, that. The technical... Um, setup is a little bit more complicated i remember it was one of these like eureka findings um or mist uh, mistake findings um where i remember that you can already produce like the proteins for the spider silk in in bacteria but mm -hmm. then you just get sort of like a gooey thing you don't get these strands of mm -hmm. silk and then uh, i think somebody left uh, a sample overnight in a fridge because they forgot about it <laughs> and the next day uh, i think I, I think something happened to the ph or something like that and suddenly it became much more silky and more fibrous and then from that on they could then properly recreate these conditions and now are able to artificially create spider silk um, if I remember correctly yeah, so there's, a, there's another article on the same website which is about the work of I think Marcus Linder is a professor who's, who's doing stuff on it which also kind of explains how they can um, yeah uh, use a microbe um, it's actually a fungus they're using in fact um, ah. to produce the spider silk so yeah cool I have uh, uh, one last small fact is uh, how green is your lab is a, a little quiz cool. uh, similar to like the BuzzFeed quizzes but this is from nature um, where you can just like click through and see how green your lab is and it's all stated very positively even like um, I did it from the stuff that I remember and that wasn't too green from the lab I worked in um, and uh, it's still the message is very positive in the end and says like you, there's so much room for improvement it's so you can oh, only get better nice. um, but yeah it's, it's pretty cool it's about like um uh, buying like making sure when you buy equipment or uh, um, consumables that they're from like sustainable companies that you share equipment within the institution and mm -hmm. so on to make sure that you don't just buy like 20 times the same machine that's just standing still most of the time yeah um and uh, yeah, so it's a for for whoever's working in a lab, it's a cool thing to click through. There's lots of resources there that they link to. I think they're pretty US centric, but still, I think they give a good idea if you are involved in the organization of any lab. I think this gives good starting points. To, just to think about alternatives that you yeah. think like the not you think uh, that you don't think that just what you're using is the only option that you think. Hey, I could be doing this instead. Or yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I wanted to make a commentary on something we mentioned. I think it was last week, but it could have been the week before. Um, we were talking about decolonizing um, 
field science, basically. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to mention that there was a recent commentary about this, um, actually in May this year, which I missed somehow. It came out in Biotropica, which is one of the Wiley um, journals. So we'll put that link there as well. I don't know if it's open access, but we'll try to find something open online. Just have a look at that as well. Okay, cool. I have a cat fact to end the show on. Oh, I have like... A couple more still. Then go for it. I mean, we're, we're already over an hour. Well, let's <laughs> okay, so firstly, one about the plant mitochondria. So there's something that came out in PLOS Genetics. Um, it's by Kozik et al. And it's called The Alternate Reality of Plant Mitochondrial DNA. One rule, one ring does not rule them all. A little bit of a Lord of the Rings reference in there for you people. Um, <laughs> um, I love it. I love it when scientists do this. Um, and it's basically the idea that the mitochondria, which as you know, has its own genome. That genome is often shown to be like one big circle of DNA and maybe a few small circles. But actually, it seems to be a much more complex um, picture. And we actually know this from some research that has happening in our institute. But you have these like kind of arches and like branches and a very like yeah yeah something which just assembling the genome is a insane. pain yeah it's like an entire phd project just to like work out which yeah. bits go where um, even if you know all of the letters of the genome just to put them in the right order like all the sections yeah and it draws very complicated maps sometimes with like yeah. branches and like arrows like you can go like this you can way, turn like, left here if you come from yeah, this side it's really, and you like, can it's turn really right. like a map it's like like now turn left now yeah. on four paces turn right or 30 percent of the time you'll turn left like and it's also these probability like it's yeah. it's, it's like different like choose your own adventure alternate realities of moving through the mitochondrial genome Okay, um, one other thing I have is from The Conversation. And I think, again, we, we love The Conversation recently. I think they have really nice articles and yeah, really think, like nice rigorous science. Yeah, Probably you already know that. But I started clicking on things on Facebook and now it's all that Facebook shows me. And I'm so happy because it's way better than all the other crap I was um, seeing. Um, <laughs> well, I post so much on Facebook. Yeah. No, is that even true? Um, so The Conversation um, recently decided that they were going to moderate how climate change deniers can comment on their articles. Mm -hmm. So basically they were just um, deleting, they've decided to basically delete comments of people who say, oh, climate change is not true. This is a hoax. Um, and this was a very deliberate choice that they made um, because they say, look, at this point, it's no longer a debate. So people who are still trying to debate the issue are actually not just not being helpful, but they're actually actively being harmful. And I think the editor, in his statement, he made the likeliness of if you're sick and you have cancer and one doctor says you have cancer, okay, maybe you can seek a, a separate, a second opinion. But then if you go to two, three, four, five hundred doctors and they all say there is cancer, at this stage, anybody who's saying we should look for more answers is actually not just like not being helpful, they're really being harmful. Yeah. And they said this is basically the, the analogy that the climate change deniers are now blocking everything so they've decided to respond by blocking climate change and I so they're, they're happy to have like reasonable debates about what to do about climate change like the politics involved how it's a very because it's a very complex issue but people who come on saying yeah, actually this doesn't the ice, actually yeah like, the ice caps are growing um, yeah actually I don't know if you know but it was very cold in my bathroom yesterday so I think that climate global warming is not a real thing like yeah. these people they're getting blocked now so this is yeah. like kind of an I'm interesting I'm a big fan of blocking yeah, I'm not blocking. I'm a little bit weird about blocking, but I, I like the way that they, they thought about this. And I, I think it's I think it applies to, to, to many issues, this idea that because it's, it's a type of framing, like when you read a news article and then you scroll down to the comment section and in the comment section, it's just 
like people claiming that nothing in the article above is true mm. then whatever you read you get this feeling like ah oh, yeah maybe there's something to it maybe it's really and if nothing else it's a waste of your atten- your like effort yeah. and attention that you have to then think about oh this like yeah. no this is not what we should be spending out we should be spending our effort on trying to solve the problem not discussing whether there is a problem because clearly there is a problem yeah yeah Okay, I have a cat fact as well, but maybe you have the same cat fact, so I don't know if you want to end the show or... Uh, no, I have the cat fact. It's, I mean, it's a, it's a bit of a stretch. It's a video that I wanted you to narrate. Um, it's this video. It's called Single Slit Experiment. Okay, so it's a cat that's trying to get through a cat hole, like a pet like hole in a door, and they put um, <laughs> different barriers <laughs> to make it harder for the cat to get in, and they see how the cat can get... <laughs> And it's, it's pretty good. And it's getting uh, progressively like tighter. Narrower and narrower. So Na- they're basically putting like artificial barriers on either side of the cat hole to make it smaller and smaller. Uh, in the beginning it was eight centimeters and then the cat went through six centimeters and now it's at five centimeters. This is not like a small cat. Oh, now he just like said, fuck you and he went over. <laughs> and yeah, and okay. he, at, so at six centimeters, it still squeezes and wiggles its way through. But at five centimeters, like it's a cardboard cutout in a door frame. Yeah, so at seven uh, centimeters, he basically just like wrecks havoc and, and breaks the whole thing, right? Yeah. Like he's not playing any games but then at uh, also he has a really angry look on his face yeah she's like why am I doing this <laughs> like you know he's just going straight to his owner's pillow and pissing or shitting or whatever yeah. like and then at five centimeters he just like jumps over the cardboard cutout does that like angry way that t- tail waggle before like this like irritated like Rrr. yeah Cats are the best. every day I have to put up with this bullshit <laughs> I just want to get some crackers Okay. Yeah. So this is my cat. Cat can fit through six centimeter <laughs> slits, but not through at five centimeter. I mean, or at five centimeters, they don't try anymore. They jump over the obstacle. I mean, the fact is really cats are fed up of your bullshit. That's like the take yeah. message. Of the- but it's also like a cat is wider than six centimeters, but it fits through a slit that's six centimeters wide. I mean, it it fucked up the slit. Let's be honest. Like, I mean, a little bit, but like a baby's head is also bigger than the average size of your vagina, but it somehow fits. How does it fit your... <laughs> I can go into details here, but I uh, think we will lose all our Too listeners. many um, of my friends have had babies recently and it just seems like such a traumatizing... Yeah, it's not fun. It's not fun. It's, like, it's not fun. Even just looking at those images of like how big your uterus should be and how big it becomes when there's a baby occupying it, like this is not okay. Like, There's a ton of terrible things. So just the fact that the stomach muscles, that they... They, they, they separate! Usually- they, yeah, that they separate. I mean, usually they're like closely, like, like close to each other. There's hardly any gap in it in, mm. in between, and then they just like stretch out, and suddenly there's a massive gap between your stomach muscles, and then you have to actively do workouts to get them back <laughs> somewhere where they were before. And you can just hope that it like gets just as good as it was before, but sometimes it just doesn't. Uh, Childbirth is like don't don't. Men should have to give birth to babies. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, I think either men should have to do it or nobody should do it. I don't see the point in it. And I, I know what you're thinking, but no, kidney stones are not the same thing. It's not no. as hard. <laughs> no. I've, I've, never seen, <laughs> I've never seen a man passing a kidney stone for like 24 hours. Uh, I've and had then neither. afterwards having to do like rehab, rehab and like trying like to get... six months to try and like... Get it back. <laughs> okay. Uh, sorry, that was... <laughs> A kind of small deviation there. Um, <laughs> so my cat fact is something which my my glorious office mate this, this morning was just obsessing over. So he found it out on the internet. He saw this and he was like, oh my goodness, Tegan, you have to see this because we're both cat fans. He has a really adorable cat. 
I don't have a cat. I'm a cat mother without a cat. It's very sad. Soon. Um, so <laughs> soon. No, I really, I can't afford a flat in London and I especially can't afford a flat which allows pets. Like it's just... Are there so many flats that don't allow pets? Yeah, like three of them out of the 200 options allow pets. And of course, they're twice as expensive. Like, I'm just going to get a secret cat. Yeah, nobody it, nobody it, who rents out flats in, in London listen to this. All right. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Um, so this is a publication that came out in Current Biology, which is a respectable journal. Um, it came out... Mm, September 23rd. I feel like today is September 23rd. No, it came out two days ago. And it's by Vital et al. And it's called Attachment Bonds Between Domestic Cats and Humans. And basically the aim of this study is to say that cats, like dogs, can be found living in social groups or solitary. And cats are just as good at making attachment bonds as dogs are. And maybe even better. So screw you, cat haters. And they used... um, Let me see if I can find it here... Uh, uh, using behavior criteria established in the human infant literature. So they looked at how people bond with their babies and then used that same kind of behavior criteria to see how cats bond with their owners. <laughs> this I mean, is this whole idea that cats stay sort of in kitten mode when they live with humans. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why they meow, because they don't really do that when they uh, grow up on their own. Um, yeah, and they just in their minds they stay kitten with uh, affection to like a motherly creature, which is then the human. And in fairness, I first became aware that my my office mate was looking at this um, paper because I heard what I was sure was a baby crying at my workplace. I was like, "There's a baby! There's a baby!" And it was just him listening to a cat video because apparently the cats sometimes they vocalize when they're distressed, like they have this anxiety that the human has left them, so like yeah. this um, disattachment or whatever attachment syndrome or something i don't know and they start like meowing so there's a video here which just shows like several examples of like cats who like people coming and sitting on people cats who are kind of ambivalent they don't care and then cats who are like insecure and there's like vocalization it's just like a cat meowing for like four more minutes like meow (laughs) it's great um you should check that out again we have the link in the show notes but can you send me a, a link that i can play it now here uh, Vital et al. I can see if I can do it. How do I use internets? Vital et al. I mean, I've sent it to you now on the the Facebooks. I mean, it's just a cat meowing. It's not like... Oh, okay. I thought it was like different kinds of meows. No, no. I think it's just... It's showing different kinds of cuddles. And then at the end, it shows <laughs> different kinds of meows. And no, no. It's the same kind of meow. Okay. Uh, if if that thing here will open quick enough, then we we might listen. If not, you can just click on the link below. Uh, Facebook is such a terrible website. It takes forever to load. It takes forever to react if you click on anything. I mean, the problem is the video that they have is also you you can't fast forward to a different part of the video. You have oh, okay. to watch the whole video. So the, of course, <sighs> the meowing is at the end. I mean, it might just be me not knowing how to use a video. That's also fair. Anyway, uh, guys. I hate everything about Facebook. <laughs> I think it's time to go. We've been talking for way too long today. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, follow us on all of the social media. Have a very nice weekend on Instagram and on Facebook. We're at Plants and Pipettes. There you'll find me communicating. And you can find me on Twitter at Plants Pipettes. And um, we have a our website. website is plant, www.plantsandpipettes.com. There we have blog posts that we release every Monday, Wednesdays. And you can also get access to our podcast on Fridays, but you probably already know that because you have the podcast. Yeah. 
Um, We're also on lots of other podcast apps, which are not Spotify. Yeah. And our start and closing music yeah, is Caravana by Philip Gross. <laughs> there we go. Uh, leave us an iTunes review. Please, <laughs> please review us. Please review us. Oh. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Bye. Oh my God. My, my colleague just literally sent me a photo of his cat. It's so beautiful. He says he has a photo of like the cat holding his hand. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Cats. <laughs> <laughs>